everybody they're being recorded it's their 450 episodes late doesn't matter anymore episode <laughs> 460 with of course longtime returner aaron shepherd my buddy but enough of aaron enough of me you guys have heard me enough and you've heard aaron enough mm-hmm. returning for a second time is dr lawrence burns author of autonomy but i also as i just said want to give you a proper introduction so people know just how impressive your background is so I am going to fanboy for a second. (laughs) Lawrence D. Burns is the former corporate vice president of research and development for General Motors. Burns oversaw GM's advanced technology, innovation programs, and corporate strategy. He was a member of GM's automotive strategy board and automotive product board. Within GM, he personally championed uh, vehicle electrification, connected vehicles, fuel cells, biofuels, advanced batteries, autonomous driving, and a series of innovative concept vehicles. He has been a leading advocate for design and technology innovation focused on the total custom experience and in the application of operations research before his retirement in 2009. And of course, the author of Autonomy, The Quest to Build the Driverless Car. You could say a little more. You have a little more on your CV than Aaron and I combined, just a tad. <laughs> but in 30 years. In th- hey, hey, you know what? Hey, you know what? I'm probably older than the two of you combined, too. So there's, that, that, that explains it. <laughs> hey, you know what? Hey, you know, it, okay, fair enough. I wanted to go into this, and I, I emailed you, and I listened to your book several times over again, because as everyone that listens to this podcast knows, that's kind of my habit. I find a book I like, and I just kind of beat it to death. And... I decided who better to ask, you know, because I can go down, I can go online and what's coming down the pipeline. You know, if you go to like Google and start typing in Apple, Mac, it'll finish it for you. Rumors. Okay, that's fine. But I figured I had a direct line of contact with you. So instead of instead of going down and finding what other people may want me to see or or PR or hype, I decided why not get the man himself. So Dr. Burns, what do you see coming down the pipeline with autonomous cars? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a great question because in some ways we're in the infancy of autonomous cars, but in other ways people think we've been working on them forever. Just a real quick uh, timeline. Um, in the early 2000s, when the uh, Middle East wars were breaking out, uh, we obviously had our, our soldiers in harm's way and we had these um uh, vehicles being blown up by these IEDs and our soldiers were getting maimed and killed and the uh, military urgently needed a, a solution and so they went about a number of pathways. One was to create an autonomous vehicle that could do missions in, in cities without any um, personnel in them, keep our people out of harm's way but accomplish the mission. So the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, took that on and they created three autonomous vehicle challenges. The first two were in the desert and the third one was the DARPA Urban Challenge. That third one was the one I participated in as head of R&D at GM. We sponsored Carnegie Mellon University and that took place in November 2007. And we won the race, uh, got the prize, and the head of DARPA, a guy named Tony Tether, I asked him, when's our next race? And he said, there's no need for no mm-hmm. anymore. Because you guys have proven this is possible. So oh, it's wow. the private sector to step up and do something about it. So you know, that, that was 13 and a half years ago. And here we are. We still don't have these vehicles commercialized. So is this a glass half empty or a glass half full? 
kind of question. Well, an engineer would say the glass is twice as big as it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the fact is that I would say it's, it's more than a glass half full. Um, this problem of perfecting an autonomous driving system on everyday roads under a wide range of conditions, I, I think has proven to be tougher than most of the pioneers anticipated. We all thought it was going to be tough, but we thought we could systematically knock off every challenge and have something commercialized by now. Mm -hmm. um, we do have some commercialization. Waymo, uh, which I, I advised for 10 years, is um, running commercial operations in Chandler, Arizona. Some people would say, you know, it's, it's a suburb, it's flat, it's nice weather, it's kind of cherry picking some easy conditions. It's not nearly as hard as San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Detroit in the winter, let's say. So so we've made great progress, but there's still more to be done. And I think the real opportunity going forward is to find these what we call use cases, these ways of taking what we know how to do today and e extract their commercial value now. Mm. So let's say hypothetically you're, you're in a car um, and it has two kinds of systems integrated into it, really three. There's you as the driver. You can drive it as you normally do. There's advanced driver assistance systems. Those are things called emergency braking, lane keeping, forward collision warning, uh, full speed adaptive cruise control. Those are things that take some of your driving workload away. GM calls that super cruise. Um, Tesla would call that, uh, that autopilot, for example. So you've got those assists in your car, and then you have another thing, you've got a fully autonomous driving capability. And I think the blending of those together are what's going to get this thing really moving. It turns out about 80 to 85% of the miles Americans drive are people in their personally owned cars. Some of the early interest in what I wrote about in the book was more of an Uber without a driver. It was a ride hailing system and if you could automate that you could really do something for urban areas i think what we're seeing going forward now is the auto companies have definitely gotten in the mix the tech companies were way out ahead the auto, this is taking longer than we thought so we thought maybe it was going to be a, a 20 mile run and now maybe it's a 40 mile run and the tech companies are still ahead but the auto companies have closed that gap quite a bit and the auto companies want to sell uh Tommy and Aaron a car. They don't want to do ride hailing. They want to sell you two guys a car. And they would like to sell you a car down the road that's autonomous. It's not quite ready, but they could sell you a car that has these advanced driver assistance systems and some autonomous capability. So let's say you're driving down Interstate 80 on a clear day on a straight stretch with a little bit of traffic. Maybe they can say, Tommy, you can take a nap now because I know from my data, my experience, that this stretch up the road, I'm anticipating it is something I can handle better than you. So go ahead and nap. I'll wake you up when I get to a, a future stretch where I might need you. Okay, so you begin to harvest this value. And maybe two months later, I can, rather than take you on a 30-mile stretch of I-80, I can take you 35 miles. Two months later, maybe I take you 40. And eventually, I'm taking you most of your miles. I think this is going to be how it plays out. And if you really look at studying, connect the dots of what GM has said publicly, what Tesla has said publicly, what Ford has said publicly, what Volkswagen has said publicly, and even what Toyota has said publicly, I think that's where the auto companies are headed, a systematic integration 
of advanced driver assistance systems where you still have to pay attention with ever increasingly capable autonomous driving. So in GM's case, it would be Super Cruise plus Cruise, which they own. In Tesla's case, it would basically be autopilot, but eventually Elon's going to whisper in your ear. They're going to say, Aaron, I've got your back for the next 30 miles. Relax. I know because I've got other Teslas up the road that the coefficient of friction on this entire stretch is really um, big and, and I can stop safely. I've got data. I've driven this with other customers so many different times. I know under these conditions, there's nothing to worry about. And you're going to say, that's great because you're going to want to be able to fully get yourself out of the loop for a while. I think that's how, how it's going to play out. And and um, similarly with over-the-road trucking, um, I think you're going to see goods movement mature with autonomous driving faster than people movement. Why is that? Well, first of all, you don't have to protect an occupant in an autonomous truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but you do with an autonomous vehicle for riding around. Secondly, that truck can follow a, a predefined safest route. So that truck doesn't need to go by the school because there's kids around. They can go around the school farther away and not worry about places where there might be kids. And so what if that package got to your door five minutes later than it would have if they took the most direct route? And then most importantly for goods movement, the business case is crystal clear. I know how much truck drivers make. I know how much FedEx and UPS drivers make and Amazon Prime drivers. And so if you can automate parts of their task, the, the payback is really clear. Whereas with autonomous cars that you own yourself, how much do you value your time out having to drive? It's kind of hard to put that value proposition together. So goods movement will move before people movement. Goods movement will take this incremental step-by-step approach. You may have two trucks going down Interstate 80 the lead one might have a driver, the following one might not have a driver, or the lead one, one truck, and the lead one with a driver, but that driver is able to operate 15 hours a day because six of those hours you really wasn't needed because the driving system handled it. So there's all kinds of ways to harvest this value before we've perfected it. Mm-hmm. And remember, perfect is the enemy of good enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're waiting to commercialize until you're perfect and you can do everything that humans can do, that might be too long of a wait for some of the investors. So I, I think you're going to see this integration of what we call ADAS with fully level four driving. And I think you're going to see the auto companies try to harvest that value proposition as they go forward. That was a brilliant answer. It's a long one. I'm sorry. No, absolutely <laughs> oh, not. It was awesome. Yeah. That my audience has hours and hours of Aaron and I's worthless rambling. Trust me. Yes. They're, they're here to listen to you. Aaron and I are just the spectators. It's, oh yes. It it does, and I think it's interesting with what with Aaron does with Cogito Brains and uh, Dr. Burns. What you spoke about with DARPA is, I would say, despite the the many 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 advantages of a of a of a capitalist and, and mostly open society, there's one drawback and it's the long-term goal that unless we can define it in quarterly profits, we probably won't get it done. And that's where things most notably DARPA has, aside from classified defense projects, 
absolutely. <laughs> to go back and you look at the history of DARPA, yeah. the Eisenhower administration, uh-huh. it was all that exact kind of challenge. Yeah. And they've done a great job. Yeah. The thing you can trace back to DARPA um, that are impacting our lives today is just is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So they've done a nice job of that. And I think it's interesting with 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 Aaron. Aaron, could could you give uh, Doctor Burns a brief overview of what you do? Because I think there is an interesting parallel with with Doctor Burns. What you spoke about is twenty years ago, and it's they're pushing the the challenges. And then when's the next race? We don't need to. You did it with what. And now it's kind of becoming a little more mature. Like my, my older brother has a Tesla, and I you know I see them, and here I am talking to you, Doctor Burns, and it's it's still not entirely here, but it feels like it's coming. And you can see this sort of almost Overton window of accepted technology to where now it's like, yes, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard to forget what it because we can always look back in hindsight. We can look back and say, well, we got to remember when when the idea of autonomous cars first came around, everyone was, you know, what is that? That is not what we do. And I think it's it's beautiful to have Aaron here because we can kind of slip on that those those slippers of yesteryear because with, with what Aaron does and and mind-controlled robotics that is yeah it's right well the, the face you just made dr burns is we're kind of instantly back in 2001 it was like it's like whoa 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 what are you what, <laughs> what you know when skynet coming on but mm-hmm. it's that my wife perfected that technology years ago don't <laughs> <laughs> get me to behave like a robot hey well, well okay well fair enough all right podcast over there we go we solved it hey but mine too yeah yeah, yeah you, you can't turn no time I, you guys aren't you guys aren't convincing me that marriage is where i need a head it's but <laughs> it's, worth it. it's absolutely worth it yeah but, aaron, uh, aaron could you give dr burns a quick overview of of what you do with yes, Oh, yes. So like Tommy said, I focus on using brain-computer interfaces, BCIs, and we create devices that respond to your thoughts. And we're, we are talking about a bunch of different applications, including using this as a therapeutic tool, uh, using this to help people that are paraplegic. And then, I mean, it's just really, really cool to think, oh, I want to do something. And then, you know, you want to – it's like you're in Star Wars and you want to control – the the robot with your mind and you think hey move and it moves and honestly i feel like it is um like tommy said one of the challenges that we face is that when you explain the technology it is so out there and it is so sci-fi that people are almost repelled by it they're like wait what i don't want the robots to read my mind i don't want to create skynet and it's interesting um the parallel the parallels between the technology that we're developing and uh, what you face with autonomous cars, because I imagine, and one question I do want to ask is, as you're pushing for innovation in that field, how much convincing have you had to do of, of people that this is reliable and safe? Well, there's no amount of PowerPoint convincing you can do to have someone believe you that a car can drive itself. The best way to get someone to believe a car that can drive itself is to have them ride in a car that's driving itself. Mm-hmm. And that that's really the key. And that's why some of these first movers, um, when they're able to bring someone out to their location and let them get in a car, let's say in Chandler, Arizona or something, and, and take a ride, suddenly their view on the technology changes dramatically. They really begin to get it. And I think on the last podcast, Tommy, I talked about my first experience riding on, on something other than a test track or a secure track in an autonomous car. And it's when I 
went and joined Google self-driving cars to be an advisor. And I went for a ride on 101 for the first time. So this would have been early 2011, late 2010. And it was a Prius and I rode it out. I drove it out to 101. I had a engineer in the uh, front passenger seat, an engineer in the back seat, a big red panic button in the console. (laughs) They said, okay, get in the center lane of 101 and engage it. Take your hands off the wheels, take your feet off the pedals and sit back and enjoy the ride. And, you know, first you're kind of nervous, your hands are shaking, your feet are shaking a bit, and you're making sure you know where that red button is. About five minutes later, you start to understand this car is doing what I would be doing if I was driving, but it's doing better. It's got 360 degree vision mm-hmm. with eyes in the back of your head kind of a thing. Doesn't get distracted, doesn't get impaired and it makes intuitive moves this is 2010 late 2010 so so i I think you're in the key like you said if 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 i could go to your lab and and you could equip me to think and say think about a robot moving the robot move you've got me i mean that's exactly and engineers sometimes call that full-time or full-scale rapid prototyping prototype something fast and and do a learning cycle off of it, break it, and then go to your next lesson and, and, and keep going. Engineers make what's possible real through learning, and learning is the foundation of innovation in my mind. And a lot of people learn differently and they comprehend differently. In my career, um, I, I never once thought about giving up an idea until I have had at least four attempts to help someone understand what I'm talking about. So being a, a senior executive in a large corporation in charge of innovation, I'd go to our strategy board meetings. I'd put an idea on the table. These were the 13 top people in GM. And my 12 peers would say, nah, nah, nah. Maybe the fourth time, three of them would say, hmm, maybe there's something there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you need a lot of tenacity. Never, ever, ever give up if you think this thing is possible and it's going to work. The other thing that's really important to understand is people – listen differently and learn differently. There was a really neat study done by SIRI International Research Institute. They were asked to study how seventh graders learn algebra. And you can learn algebra by um, learning the equation y equals ax plus b. Or you could do a graph of the values of y versus values of x. Or a table of the values of y bar chart versus x. Or you can maybe have a car move down at a certain speed and show how far the car went as a function of time or something like that. And when they let the kids pick which way they like to learn, they sort of spread uniformly over those four ways, but everybody's performance improved. Mm. Because they were learning algebra using the mental model or the way that they can comprehend it. So I think the key to keep your investors motivated and to get people believing in what you're working on is to show them, but to show them in different ways and to really let them experience it. And uh, that, I I think that's absolutely essential. Wow. And it's, it's like what you said in your book about, and you like, you know, tap on the gas, tap on, he's like, no, punch it. And he rammed into it and destroyed the bumper. And I was like, but that's how you learn is by defining the boundaries of, of what you can do. It's, mm-hmm. I, I've emailed former presidents to come on my podcast and got a firm no. And I understand. I'm like, okay, I'm not at presidential level yet. We'll, we'll take it down a notch. And it's – but there is that – but to, to, to pivot 
it's there's one video Aaron showed me, and it's of him, and he I mean he looks like a mad scientist, and he's got he's got the electrodes on his mind, and he's and it's using a beta or theta brain waves. It's Aaron's too smart for me, but it's what it is 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 it's an electromagnet. And when he thinks or when you think about something or whatever, it, whatever the action is that you do with your mind, the corresponding physical reaction is the electromagnet turns on and it picks up like a washer and mm-hmm. then he stops and it drops. And I remember I was so blown away by that and other people didn't understand why I was blown away by it because yes, although it's, although it's like you in 2010, it's kind of Wilbur and Orville, right? It's like, all right, whatever. They flew 120 feet. It's what I told Aaron is. The implications of that, the implications of the right flyer imply Air Force One. Mm -hmm. And the implications of that is, I believe, what implies when you have your car and it's okay, it sees the dust cloud during the DARPA challenge and it it goes around this. At first, you know, it may look like 2001 A Space Odyssey. It may look like he's picking up the club and it's what that implies, though, is that we're now using tools. It's an entire new epoch of humanity. And yeah. yeah, it's is that what you find you have experiences with, Doctor Burns? Is do you have to see that original thing that maybe other like Aaron, like a mad scientist in his garage with a washer? Do you have to look for that the implications and be able to extrapolate from Orville Wright to a seven forty seven? Is that yeah. what you need? Yeah, yeah. I think th- th- there's um, a lesson in this. It's called think big, start small, and learn fast. Okay. So skills smart. So I think you have to think big. If you take what Aaron's talking about and you really think big, what's possible if you can use your mind to control robots? I mean, that's a huge, oh, big opportunity, the way that that's going to transform people's lives and it's not and, and absolutely this is going to be great for people with with disabilities and by, by the way i hear with cochlear implants mm-hmm. you, you have read about that in my book yes, and that's that happened because there was a, a a doctor in australia named graham clark in the 70s who believed that he could stimulate an auditory nerve with an electrode no one believed him he almost went bankrupt with his personal wealth to even try it finally he was able to implant one electrode on one deaf man's ear and that deaf man could sense or hear sound. He would know something happened. I have 22 electrodes in each year. So we've gone from one electrode to 22. We've got better batteries. We've got better software, mm-hmm. got better microphones. And when I had my second ear implanted in 2011, my first ear in 94, I went from not being able to understand music to not being able to enjoy the music I grew up with. You know, ZZ Top and the Doors and the uh, Rolling Stones and those kinds of groups. And I love them. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. But but if a new uh, entertainer came along, Adele, I I can't I can't really appreciate Adele's music. Maybe I don't want to. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I should. But 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 that's the mind, Aaron. I'm sure you've gotten into that in a big way. I read a book about healing in the mind, and my mind, I think, actually rewired itself. The input that came from those electrical stimuli on my my auditory nerve, you've got 30,000 hairs that wiggle back and forth and stimulate your auditory nerve. I've got 22 electrodes. So it didn't make any sense initially. I think my my brain rewired itself somehow to understand those sounds because I can relate it to the environment. Absolutely. 
That step that Professor Clark took in the 70s was like an overwrite moment or like your robot picking up a washer and make, making it possible. If there's a market for it, the engineers and marketers will figure a way to get this stuff to mature. It's, it's yeah. And so I, one question that I have is when you, because you obviously work in innovation, and when you work in innovation, you are inherently forward thinking. However, the rest of the world is not. And so how do you how do you manage the two? Because like if you're directing if you're directing innovation at GM and you have this idea, how do you go through the process of like trying to stay ahead, but then also keeping the people that need to be satisfied in this moment satisfied? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think um, communication is extraordinarily important part of that. And if you're a leader of, of an innovation organization or a startup company, you really have to be very, very good at communicating. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating because I've been on advisory boards of venture capital funds and stuff in the second career after I left GM. And you know, I've looked at hundreds of not thousands of startups. And oftentimes the startup was because of a technically brilliant or marketing brilliant individual. And as, as these companies start to make progress, they've got to go out and raise money and they've got to motivate investors. That person's skill set may not have been to be a great communicator. That's not a criticism. It's just not what, what got the idea started. And a lot of times these startups don't make it over the goal line because they can't pivot to the kind of leadership that they need to keep everyone motivated. It's not just the investor. It's the employees mm-hmm. and others that you have to have continued to believe in, in what's possible. And um, so it's a, it's a tall order. And by the way, not everything works out. I, I do think sometimes there's a media image of the young innovator who became a billionaire because he had an idea. So everyone wants to go out and be an entrepreneur and do a startup. I would say out of a thousand startups, one of them gets to a point where the, the, the founders really became financially successful. It is a hard our journey. It takes great tenacity, great energy, great passion and commitment and belief in what you're doing. But when you get it right, the rewards can't be greater. They're just so stimulating. For me, it's it's not the money. I mean, being financially rewarded is fine. Sure. It's looking mm-hmm. back and seeing your fingerprints on the world. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what every engineer aspires to do is leave their fingerprints behind, having created something that made a meaningful difference in the lives of people is pretty nice feeling. That's, that's what's motivating, I think, for, for us engineers. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. I thought, kind of just thought about what you just said. Yeah, the, the romantic idea of the, he had an idea and he pursued it and now he's a billionaire. And it makes me think of in World War II, parallel to the construction of the atomic bomb was a plan to put incendiary, little incendiary bombs, like a couple grams, and we were going to tie them to bats. And we were going to drop the bats over Tokyo and they were going to go hide under dark crevices under buildings and then they'd all explode and burn Tokyo to the ground. It didn't work because the bats burned down the testing ground. So we all know about the A-bomb and we go, hey, that won the war. And it's there's some scientists that are known for the bat thing or rather they are not known for the bat thing. So it might be the A-bomb, it might be a bat. It doesn't always work out. Um, no, it doesn't. And, and you know, I mean, you can't anticipate all of these things. Yeah. You know, so people will talk about the unanticipated consequences. 
I'd I like to talk about the anticipated consequences in terms of autonomous electric vehicles. And what are those anticipated consequences? We've got 1.2 to 1.3 million people a year dying on the world's roadways. And we're going to eliminate 90 to 95% of those crashes. Um, that's an anticipated consequence, not an unanticipated one. We're going to be able to get the dependence of, of transportation off of oil And the auto companies are pivoting to electric vehicles, not because they suddenly found religion on climate change or pivoting there. Because <laughs> Einstein said the best design is the simplest one that works. And now that we've got batteries that are viable for our transportation needs, a battery electric vehicle is radically simpler than a combustion-based mechanically driven vehicle. So, you know, th th this whole anticipated consequence of of um, being able to get off of oil for geopolitical purposes is a, is a big deal. The uh, anticipated consequence of, of people who can't afford a car or can't physically drive a car now suddenly have access to jobs and education and shopping the way that people who have cars have it. The cycles of poverty in many cities are directly tied to the lack of transportation that people have. So the pile of anticipated consequences associated with autonomous electric vehicles is so big that the risks of the unanticipated um, shouldn't get in the way. And, so, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying you're suggesting this at all, tell me by your question, but when I'm out I'm giving my speeches, I get a little bit frustrated by the yeah, but audience saying, well, yeah, but you might not be able to do this in the snow or something like that. Um, or it's gonna, we're going to have jobs impacted. We're going to have jobs impacted on, no matter what happens you know, going forward. Yeah. So I, I, I think you got to really passionately go after the anticipated consequences, learn about the unanticipated, manage those in a responsible way, and, and, and then get on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the analogy that's always used is we didn't, we didn't prevent the creation of cars because what would happen to the horse and buggy industry? It's like it, it evolved. You can't, you, it, you can't, you'll be stagnant forever. Um, yeah, if yeah. We, Aaron? No, I was going to say, you also have to evolve with it because um, as somebody who works a lot in robotics, and when I talk to people about that, they're like, oh, well, the robots are going to take our jobs. And I'm like, well, yeah, but then they'll create a whole bunch more. It's the same thing as the computer, where the computer replaced, it made a whole bunch of jobs obsolete, but then it created an exponential amount more. And Absolutely. Absolutely. I think where, where it's a little tough right now is people can't quite see those jobs the way they may have been able to see them um, in the early 1900s. You know, this period of time from 1880 to 1920 is fascinating because it really defined the technologies that I experienced growing up. So you're talking about cars and planes and trains and radios and TVs and those kinds of things were the things that my parents in the 1950s, I was born in 51, those were the things they aspired to own and then obviously shaped me considerably as I grew up. And so I think you're going to look back in history from 1990 to 2020 and you're going to say similarly. And it's all of this stuff around robotics, around digital technology, around um, material science, because I'm sure there's things happening in material science that are going to make it easier to commercialize what you're doing with uh, your thoughts being able to control a robot. And the stuff going on at the nanoscale with materials is stunning. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the question isn't whether we should pursue these opportunities, because I do think they're going to make the world a better place. 
it's who, who's going to win and who's going to lose. That's one of the reasons why I wrote Autonomy is I wanted people to understand this is coming. It appears inevitable. And if you're one that's going to be disruptive, you better get in front of that and get yourself positioned for the, the new skills and the new jobs that are going to emerge from this future. Um, there's a lot of jobs at Amazon right now because e-commerce came along and disrupted retail shopping. So should we not have embraced e-commerce because someone who is a salesperson in a sexist avenue at a mall may no longer have that job? I don't think so. I, 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 I think it's motivated the retail players to innovate, <laughs> which is a good thing. So um, innovation is, is really, really a powerful force. Well, and with, combined with capitalism, I'm time you were alluding to that earlier, there has to, has to be a motivation for doing it. Sure. Well, I mm-hmm. think it's, it's well, kind of what you said earlier, the anticipated and the unanticipated. What was the unanticipated? You know, well, we'll, we'll never live to see a pandemic. <laughs> and now there's e-commerce <laughs> and thank God, right? It's, it's like, oh, wow. I mean, imagine if we had to do an Operation Warp Speed with e-commerce, though. Like, no, the, the infrastructure was already there. The warehouses were there. The 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 mega corporation Amazon already existed. Like yeah. it just kind of picked it up pretty seamlessly. Yeah, yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Um, if we could, if we could skip to the uh, to the last question, um, unless Aaron, unless you have any specific questions, uh, I do have a question. Sure. But if you take want it. To no, no, it. take it, take it. Um, I guess, uh, and again, because uh, like you, I'm I'm an engineer, and I. I like in most engineers or entrepreneurs, uh, Tommy, for example, we just see the world differently. And I feel like um, I, I, I don't know if I'm being repetitive, but I think one of the challenges is how do you breed a culture that is accepting of innovation in the spaces that you're operating in? Because like in, for innovation to take place, it, it, you need time, you need money, you need uh things that people just don't want to give, especially in this age where everybody's expecting things to be instantaneous. How do you breed that culture now? Yeah, yeah. Again, I think I think a whole lot of it is to um, start with the end in mind and work backwards. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that proves to be a very, very good technique. So it's, again, it's a communication strategy. There's a, a writer named Russ a- Akoff who, who came up with that thought process. So imagine you need to climb a mountain and you could envision that challenge by starting at the bottom, taking your first step and figuring out your next step. Every time you take your first and next step, you're dealing with a lot of ambiguity. You're wondering, is this route gonna take me to the top of the mountain? Another way to think it through is start at the top of the mountain and work backwards and say, I've arrived. And now, what was the last step I took that got me here? And the second to the last step and third to the last step. Sometimes that will give you a way of defining your path forward because you still have to bring that back down to the bottom of the mountain and work your way up. So it's not a matter of being done with that. So I think that visualization is, is very, very important. Being able to do the storytelling around that, being able to do animations. Um, there's a lot of visualization tools today that didn't exist when I was younger that will help people grasp it. The other, the other real key thing is to focus on making value, not you know, not just making things. And, and value, value creation happens. You know, you've got value made when it exceeds the price people are willing to pay then they're going to want it. If the value exceeds the price people are willing to pay, they're going to want it. And if the price exceeds the cost to make it, you're going to want to produce it. So I call that a tipping point. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's real important, Aaron, in your business for your commercialization of your product, what is that market tipping point where you can see a Gen 2 or Gen 3 product? Don't, don't get fixated on Gen 1 products being profitable. That's just not going to happen. You need two, three, four learning cycles with real customers to create supply bases and get all of this stuff done. But somehow you have to get your investors to understand that there is a tipping point it's within a reasonable amount of time and that even though it's not the perfect answer that's the top of the mountain it's a very meaningful commercialization that is taking me along a path of value creation mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think the value has to be there for the consumer obviously but also for the shareholder it, it all has to be there mm-hmm. it's well yeah so that's a brilliant way to look yeah it's not going to be the first one that works Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but it, it, the first one has to be good enough to give you a chance sure. to do the second one. Yeah, sure. So, Proof of anti-lock brakes, which was amazing. When I learned to drive, one of the things they taught me in driver's training is you got on some ice, pump the brakes, pump the brakes, you know, all that stuff. Well, that's totally obsolete now. The first anti-lock brakes that GM developed was sold as an option on one Cadillac model. <clears throat> so that was ABS-1. It wasn't until ABS-6 that the technology had matured to the point where we were putting it on lower price Chevrolets across the board. Mm. So that took six generations of technology development to go from an option on one Cadillac model to a standard on all cars. And um, so that that's what happens with learning. You learn, and, and a lot of these things, you need a competitive supply base if you're just using prototype parts, I'm sure that mechanism you put on your head to send your brainwaves there and probably has a lot of specialized prototype parts that are one of the kind and pretty expensive to cobble all that together. But if someday you're going to envision a production design for that, mm-hmm. you're going to get three or four suppliers competing for your business because this is something people want. And, and then you're going to deliver the value and the quality at a price that allows it to scale. So um, engineering isn't just the technical part of our job. You do need to understand value propositions. You need to understand some basics about your customer, your customer's aspirations and needs. A lot of the innovation we do, um, if, if you wait for a survey result and the customer says, I want it, you're probably too late. So you've got to have the courage of, of creating value based on other instincts than just what a customer will tell you, because most customers can't really articulate what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think there's a, a lot of courage here. So Tommy, you asked in the introduction to today's session, you said, you know, what lessons are there for, yes. for entrepreneurs? It does take a lot of courage, a whole lot of courage. And um, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of determination, a lot of belief in yourself and your team takes really good communications. Um, you, you need to understand and believe whether or not you're de- what you're developing is inevitable and that inevitability will, will deliver the value. And um, very, very importantly, a lot of, again, I'm d- dating myself a bit, but back when I went through engineering school, a lot of my classmates just couldn't wait to graduate because they could put their textbooks away and they wouldn't have to go to school anymore. People today, it's lifetime learning. It's yeah. not about having a degree. It's about having the ability to learn, a passion for learning, and a willingness to continue to learn. Um, mentors, sometimes they get over overplayed, but I do think mentors can help a whole lot. 
I have a daughter who's thinking about starting a business right now. And fortunately, I can mentor her, not just as a dad, but from my business experience. And I, I really, really sense she appreciates it, that it's not just because I'm her dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so men, men, mentoring is important. Um, I, I jotted down a few other notes. Um, I think I mentioned this thing, whole thing of thinking big, but starting small and learning fast. So really, um, if you have an idea that you think is appealing and, and you think you have a pathway through marketing to get a thousand customers, think big about a million or 10 million customers. And what, what does that mean in terms of the, the, the motivation for where, for where you're headed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. And um, uh, just kind of a side note, what you said about uh, Aaron, Aaron's headpiece, his, his Skynet evil scientist headpiece, but it does have one of a kind, very unique, very expensive pieces. Um, you would both appreciate this. Ben Rich of Lockheed Martin Skunk Works used to say that kind of their one of their pride points was they would take off the shelf things. So mm-hmm. like the prototype for the F one seventeen Nighthawk, the have blue or tacit blue, they would take stuff out of fighter jets that they had just laying around. Yeah. It was, it's, it's not the piece made out of platinum and, and you know, whatever. And it's like, no, we can, we can strip something from an F-16. We can take it out of a B-52. And that is, that's the, that's the economically feasible point. It's Mm -hmm. because I mean, even within Lockheed Martin, they had to sell their crazy ideas. They were like, why don't we just produce commercial jets? And, you know, they had to go pitch the SR-71 Blackbird back when black and white TVs were a hot product. It's going (laughs) to fly Mach 3 at 85,000 feet. Hear me out. And it's like, what? And it's but that's how they had to do it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. One one other thing. The um, the ultimate strategy is what. I, I, I call design innovation focused on the total customer experience. So you, it's everything's a system. So you've got to look at this total customer experience and you have to create uh, innovative designs that your customers really find compelling. Mm-hmm. Not just good, but, but, but compelling. And so you need that design innovation. You need technology innovation because any design innovation you have can be copied. So it's the technology innovation that makes our experience even more compelling is your inherent competitive advantage, but you also need operational excellence. If you produce something that doesn't deliver on its brand promise, so let's say you're gonna create an autonomous driving system and you're gonna set up a transportation service like Uber without a driver without a driver, and you promise people you're gonna pick them up in three minutes and you pick them up in five, you're gonna lose. You know, you don't have the operational effectiveness to or the car's dirty or something like that. So Operational effectiveness may not be glamorous, but it's really, really, really important. And you think about all the things that have to be true for Delta Airlines to take off on time, drop me off safely, land on time safely, and my bags sync up with me and all of that stuff. Those, that's operational excellence when airlines can begin to perform time and time again on schedule. Those are, those are hard things. So, so you need all of that. You need design innovation. You need technology innovation, and you need operational effectiveness to, to, to be successful in your business, or your or your customers are going to walk. Okay. So, um, I think I think those are the things I'd really share share with the entrepreneur. Yes, and uh, you know, it yeah. might sound trite, but never, 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 never give up. Well, uh, it really takes a lot of courage and tenacity. Well, you, it, yeah, I mean, I, I beat that down a lot on people. Don't give up, and it, it does sound cheesy, but it's. 
to me it's it's if if you give up there is certain there's comfort in that because you have certainty certainty that you failed if you don't give up you can say i've i've just failed so far right you know well, I, didn't fail. I just figured out something else that didn't work didn't work yeah it, yeah. it wasn't used to say that a lot yeah that mm-hmm. i've got one more thing that i know doesn't work yeah and yeah. that's a great story. Yeah it, yeah. it wasn't that scratch off. It was, it was another one. Aaron. Yeah. One thing I was going to say is that, um, also, gosh, the thought is leaving me, but it was about, it was about giving up. And it's the fact that, um, it, guys keep going. The thought will come back to me. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're fine. No, it's, um, I was going to say you, you do have, a when you have to show people how something works when they see it, yeah. it's, and I, at, at the risk of sounding immature because I am as, as Dr. Burns is in a nice collared shirt and I'm in a, a neon blue hoodie. It's, mm-hmm. but, but at the risk of sounding immature, it might not necessarily even be taking the, the CEO of GM in a self-driving car. It might be something like, you know, it, Oh, I don't have to have a car. I can call Uber. Well, what's the real thing? Everyone my age, it's, oh, we can get drunk and call an Uber. Yes. Well, when everyone goes out, I mean, the real kicker might be you don't have to call an Uber. Your car takes you home. Oh, yeah. At the risk of sounding, that might be what drives it. Without without question, it will drive some customers. Oh, there's one other lesson I wanted to leave. leave We should probably wrap up. Sure. You need to use the word and... Not you personally, but people okay. need to think about the power of the word and versus the word or. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think integrated thinking, the integrative mind is really, really important. So the never-ending debate when I was heading R&D at General Motors is should we do battery electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles? At the end of the day, it was an and. Both of them have electric motors. Both of them benefit from what I call skateboard chassis mm-hmm. design both of them have power electronics and um one stores electrons the other one stores hydrogen but at the end of the day they both drive electrically with zero emissions and i wish i wouldn't have called the one a fuel cell because it makes it sound so different from a battery but a fuel cell is just a hydrogen battery so this concept of the power of and is really really important i think for entrepreneurs try to mm-hmm. not prove i'm right that it's a or b Oftentimes, A and B trump A or B. Trump yes. in a, a card-playing context. It's better than, than A or B. So I would say that, that's a real important life lesson. There was a writer named Roger Martin. He wrote a book called The Opposable Mind, and he studied successful CEOs versus less successful CEOs. And he found that the successful CEOs had an integrative mind, okay. that they were able to connect these things in their mind and, and keep options in play by thinking in terms of uh, and rather than or. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, the the thought ahead. actually came back to me. I'm sorry about that. Uh, the thought actually came back to me. It was when you were talking about, um, when we're talking about the concept of not giving up, it is, it sounds cliche, but it's not, it's, there's a difference between knowing the right answer and then executing the right answer. And I feel like oftentimes um, with innovation, with entrepreneurship, you know the right answers. You know, 
oh, well, you shouldn't do this or you should try to do that. It's actually going through the process of trying to execute it. And Oh, man, I'm glad you brought that up because that's where the money is. That's where the big money gets spent. When you go to scale a business, that's where the big money gets spent. Not when you're doing Gen 1 rapid prototyping and stuff. It's it's why you need to think big, learn fast, and, and so that you can um, scale smart. Mm-hmm. And the real money that finance people, CFOs, worry about are the big capital expenditures and the big cash flows. And that is all about execution. There was a, a guy during the last Olympics, I think it was the one in Sochi, when the, um, the founder of Under Armour, um, they created a new speed skating suit for the speed skating team, Under Armour did. And the U.S. speed skating team wasn't doing anywhere near as well as expected. So they wanted to blame it on these new speed skating suits. And this CEO of Under Armour basically said, um, brands are built in drops and lost in buckets. And I thought that was profound. Wow. That's why, that's why this execution is so darn important. Yeah. Well, people will remember a negative about an experience and tell their friends that way more often than they do when something goes well. That's, so a, that's execution a is really yeah. a key lesson for entrepreneurs. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, on Amazon, I don't look at the positive reviews. I only read the negative ones. I see where it is. Mm-hmm. But Dr. Burns, Aaron, and I have kept you five minutes longer than we said we would. I blame that entirely on Aaron. And <laughs> thank you so much for coming on my podcast again, sir. You're a brilliant individual. Your book, Autonomy, on Audible, I will put in the description as always. Aaron, I'll put Cogito Brains in there. Aaron, I will see you again. Dr. Burns, I hope to talk to you again one day. Thank you so much for coming. Do you have something to say? Can we just talk a second after you take us off, off the video? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, um, yeah, for everybody listening, I'll, well, you'll be here this when it's uploaded. Uh,